It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to the Dare to Unlead podcast, episode five. We continue to explore chapter by chapter the themes discussed in the book. Myron Rogers told us about change in living systems, Stove Boyd about the failure of current leadership, Jeff Boudreaux about the dynamics in human systems, and Lois Kelly told us about the joys and sorrows of change agents and how to be a more impactful one. Now let's turn our attention to creating collective liberty at work. That's chapter five. Autonomy, agency, responsibility are strong enablers of good work, but how do we scale freedom while avoiding the temptation of excessive control and bureaucracy and achieving collective performance? Can we do liberty by design? Have we already made progress in this direction with the new ways of work, you know, remote, hybrid, etc., and the new tech solutions that have become familiar since COVID? And who else but Lee Bryant to ask about this? Lee is passionate about using technology to put humans front and center of the way we do things in the 21st century. He co-founded the influential social business consultancy Headshift 20 years ago to investigate new uses of social technology inside organizations and more recently PostShift, which works on the development of new organizational operating systems. We'll ask him exactly what that means. An earlier bio of Lee mentioned, open quote, the intersection between new social technologies and new thinking on organizational structure and culture. Close quote. And I think this says quite well where Lee resides, metaphorically, of course, because in real life, Lee lives close to beautiful Lisbon, having left England a few years ago. I have known Lee Bryant for about 10 years, and every time I hear him speak, I am touched by the depth of his knowledge and the clarity of his vision. Lee And this vision is anchored in strong values of human connections. And Lee urges us to make room for human ingenuity, which is not self-evident in a world that instead tends to breed defiance of people and over-reliance on technology. Lee, I'm so glad you could come. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So Lee, I'll start with the first question I ask all my guests. What is your art? What is the professional practice that you would describe as unique to you or that you perform in a unique way? And what led you to it? That's a, that's a great question. I think probably I would say my art is about self-representation and also helping people discover their agency. Um, because it's often hidden or not quite at the surface. So we used to call this humanizing the enterprise, um, but it's not really just about business. It's it's really about building better institutions for the 21st century, because I think if we look around us now, we can see that our 
institutions are not really fit for purpose in politics today, in democratic structures, in international organizations, and most certainly in business and other forms of uh, smaller organizations. So I think that's a, that's my challenge. That's what I throw, that's the wall I throw myself against um, over and over again for, for many years. But actually, I never intended to, to get into business. I was always into uh, politics and sort of international relations and so on. That's what I studied in actual fact. But what happened to me was, you know, I came from a background in sort of anti-racism. Um, I ended up on a crazy journey from journalism to sort of politics and diplomacy. And I ended up working within the Bosnian government during the war in a very sort of hard, challenging and fast-paced uh, sort of existential struggle, actually. And my job was to help sort of reframe international coverage and international politics, because we had a situation where a handful of countries and media organizations had a great dominance over the way that uh, the conflict was understood. And in their pursuit of what they thought was neutrality, they were actually missing the key principles at stake here in terms of, you know, a multi-ethnic future and equality and and so on. So I used to do sort of blogging before blogging. I had a an amazing network of sources, you know, all over the country, all over the world, from frontline sources all the way to secret diplomatic uh, meetings. You know, I had a few friendly prime ministers and ministers in different countries that would feed me things. And I would produce a, a daily briefing as truthful as I as I could make it, but obviously supporting our, you know, point of view. And I would send it overnight on a computer fax modem all over the world. And it was quite impactful. And then what happened was one day, uh, my former media professor came into the embassy uh, where I was working and he showed me an early web browser. This is sort of 1994, I think. And he just said, that's your future. And he was right. So after that, um, the crazy career sort of came to an end, you know, and there was a peace deal and so on. And so... I wanted to work with NGOs and human rights organizations in making them less like marketing agencies and more like real organizations focused on, you know, representing reality and not turning people into a cliched picture of a starving African child or something like. So we did a few interesting projects and then I sort of by accident discovered that, you know, the the world is full of these sort of battery chickens living within cubicles in organizations. And if you could, you know, find a way to make their lives maybe just 10% less alienating, actually that added up to, you know, a whole contribution to human potential. So that was my sort of accidental journey into applying these ideas to business. Mm, that's a cruel but very true analogy, I feel, the battery chicken. And uh, what does uh, PostShift do, the company you co-founded? So I guess day to day, um, what the team does is that we, we sort of run and we help create quite large long-term digital transformation programs. So we've done that with a number of quite substantial, uh, mostly European organizations, but also Asian and Middle Eastern organizations as well. We also do a lot of learning. So we, you know, we teach senior executives and also emerging leaders essentially about what a digital organization is, how can you transition towards it, and also how do you run it? So, so that's our sort of day-to-day, -day, you know, bread and butter work. But behind the scenes, what we're doing is we're, we're sort of trying to apply 
as you said, you know, two decades or more of, of practical experience into this notion of an organizational operating system. This is the sort of high level work that we that we try and do. And we want to translate that into a better way of helping organizations transition. So not change programs, not transformation programs, but possibly software, possibly systems, possibly architectures. So that's our sort of bigger mission. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's uh, exactly what I saw on the on the website. Uh, the positive website says that the next wave of digital transformation is about, open quote, creating natively digital and connected structures that operate like software. And you add, it is time to upgrade our organizational operating systems. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, you know, I think... Mark Anderson famously said, you know, software is is eating the world. And, and I'm somebody who believes that software will be everywhere, but it won't be everything, right? We still need beauty. We still need, you know, physical objects. We still need food. We still need a, a, a meaningful human life. So I'm not sort of obsessed with automating everything or turning everything into, into bots. But I do believe that there are some really fundamental lessons we can take from the evolution of software architecture um, and the way things work. You know, Kevin Kelly wrote this really interesting book, What Technology Wants. And he, he has a thesis that technology evolution is, in fact, really just a subset of human evolution. And so, in a sense, we're co-evolving with the tools and the technologies that, that we create. Um, I think Stowe, you know, Stowe Boyd says, you know, we make our tools and our and our tools make us. And if you look at the architecture of software and how it's evolved, it's very close to a human sort of ecosystem or a natural ecosystem. You have lots and lots of agents and components which are all fighting for survival, pursuing their own fitness function, but within a cooperative and a competitive ecosystem. And so, you know, some things succeed and grow, some things fail and die. But overall, the affordances of this software ecosystem is incredible. You know, when I was young, I started coding in, you know, basic and assembly language and everything was hard. But today we've gone up so many levels of abstraction that I can sit down now and write prompts and a magical, you know, sort of AI bot will write the code for me. And that's an incredible evolutionary journey, but it's not one that we've seen in organizations, right? So The basic structures of an organization are like an evolutionary rock pool. You know, there's no competition, there's no change, there's no evolution, there's no intelligence really in the way that we coordinate work in organizations. And so for me, I think we can learn a lot of lessons from software architecture and we can create the right combination of human and machine. Because if you if you were to sort of be rather brutal in critiquing the default organizational model today, I would say it's basically like an ineffective machine constructed from generic management meat, right? So it's neither human nor machine. It's not human enough, but equally it's not machine-like enough. And so what I think we can do is we can use technology to solve a lot of the underlying boring coordination of work questions and problems precisely so that we can be more freeform, experience more liberty and connect with each other in much more meaningful and productive ways on top. So that's really sort of where we're headed with that idea. And to be clear, this does not apply to IT companies alone, but to any kind of organization. Is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, you know, for example, if you look at your, your phone, you look at your TV, look at your automation system, even your car, we have this idea that there is a core underlying platform, which is conservatively tightly managed. It runs security, privacy, compliance, risk management, rules of the road. You can't mess with it, right? So I can't edit the iPhone operating system. But what it does is it exposes all of these magical sort of services and capabilities. And then I can have a world of infinite variety on top by having a specific app that uses those services to do something very personal to me, you know, something that I want to experience. And so you've got this sort of tight and loose model. And I think that is a far better architecture for the way that modern organizations work today. Because, you know, for example, the, the default system is, is a vertically divided architecture. Everything is top down. It's got no intelligence. You know, the roots are up and down rather than across. And what we need is something that's laterally connected, something that's ne networked and horizontal. And that's, I think, what the idea of sort of, you know, platforms, if you like, brings us. And we can do all of the boring automation stuff, all of the work coordination stuff in that layer so that we can have freeform, autonomous, agile teams, networks, squads, tribes, whatever sort of informal structures, you know, work for a particular organization. And they can use these services to actually create value for customers, to create wonderful experiences, uh, and to do all of this without needing the socio-political system of a management class who tell them what to do. Hmm. Is that a remedy to what you sometimes speak about and call learned helplessness? What is that? Well, you know, this is one of the, there are many negative sort of artifacts of hierarchy in organizations, right? So the way I think of hierarchy is it's, it performs three basic functions. It's a social status system. And that is just natural, right? That happens with all creatures and it will never go away. So I don't have a problem with that. But it's also the, the way that we communicate in organizations. And it creates very negative communication cultures, you know, top down, incomplete information, managers talking to their underlings privately in a very, you know, often aggressive way, often unkind way that you would never see if they were communicating around a dinner table or even within an open Teams or Slack channel. But the, the third and the worst possible use of hierarchy is as a means to coordinate work. It's just so hideously inefficient. It was designed around the telegraph and the telegram, not around AI, Teams, Slack, and all the other tools that we have today. And one of its negative effects, I think, is that it does teach people not to tinker, not to experiment. You know, it teaches people that only the high priests of IT can tell you how to use your, your laptop or, you know, or Outlook or some idiotic technology you know, like that. I have a cat, as you know, and, um, and I worship my cat as most cat owners uh, do. And I also have kids as well. <laughs> and I love this word, I love this word, uh, neoteny, right? So the, the, the process of neoteny is, is essentially the idea that all creatures want to be a baby if we let them. So, you know, although my cat's supposed to be a, a murdering sort of huntress, she really likes to curl up on my lap and behave like a baby. And inside an organization, if you treat people like children, people will always behave like children. Because why would they not? It's comfortable. 
you know you don't need to worry you don't need to work too hard and so for me this is a characteristic of 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 hierarchy it's a character it's an artifact of top-down management so it's not my sort of driving goal but i think it's definitely a good side effect of actually giving people more liberty but also requiring more obligations that you might put under the category of fraternity that balance between freedom and responsibility is i think very very important and i think many of the models that uh, that we work with people sometimes misunderstand them as being nice models you know it's all about freedom it's all about transparency and saying what you want to say well yes but it's also a much more competitive environment as well because there's nowhere to hide in a bureaucracy you can just move papers around and have a career of 20 or 30 years barely turning up right but in a connected you know modern smart organization you have responsibilities you have accountability to each other not just to this faceless machine so it's not just about liberty it's also about obligations and mutual accountability as well hmm. Do you think this uh, autonomy at scale can be designed? That's a, a question I really would like to explore with you now. Would you say that, uh, for example, the Rendan Heyi model developed by Hire uh, does that? And can this model be replicated? Are there any downsides to it? What's your view? Well, I think the first thing, uh, in fact, Back to what I just said, you know, the first thing about the Rendon Hay model is that you need to understand it's hyper competitive. Mm. You know, it's not a comfortable place and it requires more of you, but equally it gives you more capacity for autonomy and for and for liberty. And the reality is that not everybody wants that in their work. Some people just want to turn up, you know, perform the theater take their money and, and go home and live their life. And that's absolutely fine. We shouldn't all be focusing our identity on, on work unless that's something we're deeply passionate about. So I would say I do believe that we can design systems that enable autonomy at scale. We can't design autonomy, obviously, but we can design systems that encourage and promote autonomy at quite large scale. So yes, I do believe in that and i think the the downside as i say is primarily that these are very open uh, systems where there's nowhere to hide and so they're not for everybody you know some people will find them too competitive you know to the extent of almost being quite uh, quite brutal but i think the insight that i love from uh, Zhang Ramin and 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 the Rendon Hay model is this idea that contracts as you know trustable reliable expressions of mutual commitment shouldn't just exist between organizations but they should also exist between people between teams between functions so it's it's a bit like the morning star case study in organizational design you know people make mutual commitments to each other i think that's a very very powerful idea and i think the architecture that they've put in place which is essentially you know a platform organization supporting a rich ecosystem of independent micro enterprises who can work together compete against each other they can cluster you know they can form other structures that's a very very smart powerful architecture which also again reminds me of software mm. in the field of technology there's a lot of buzzwords uh, all around us uh, web3 crypto blockchain ai chat gpt that kind of things so what do you take what do you think is useful to watch and what do you think is nonsense or not relevant 
so that's an easy one. Uh, crypto is trash, top to bottom. It has zero social purpose whatsoever. And if you're in it because you're trying to make a quick buck, good luck. I hope you're left holding the bag. Blockchain is an extremely basic technology that, as a technologist, I understand has very limited applications. It's essentially a database, right? You need to be sort of less knowledgeable about tech to get really excited about the potential of uh, distributed ledgers and, and the blockchain. There are a handful of use cases, possibly long-term property ownership documentation and a few others, where this could improve things. But for the most part, it's massively overhyped and it has no purpose. It does, however, have a fundamental problem that annoys me, which is this idea of being a trustless system. For me, I want to use technology to create more social surface area for interpersonal human trust. So I want trustful systems. I want us to scale our humanity, not design it out by assuming that trust is impossible. And so we'll have a trustless algorithmic, uh, purely transactional relationship between people. So this is why I don't think that DAOs have a great future, because I just think that Trustless systems incentivize bad behavior. And that's what we've seen all the way through the crypto story. Because why would you not? If code is law, do anything the code supports, who cares who's on the other end of that transaction? You do what the code allows. Whereas if I've sat down with somebody and had a glass of wine or broken bread with them, I'm very, very unlikely to want to exploit them in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm a pussycat and I will be nice to them and loyal to them you know, for, for, for a very long time unless they prove that they're not uh, to be trusted. So that's the problem with that class of tech. In terms of AI and machine learning, first of all, almost everything we call AI is just machine learning. It's not actually sort of general purpose AI. ChatGPT is exciting. Um, I think, you know, it's a huge uh, step forward. But what confuses me is why we are trying to replicate the worst aspects of humans in the bots themselves. Why do we want sort of bullshitters? Why do we want people hallucinating and making up facts? And why do we want to give them these combative personalities that try and pretend that they have a soul? I would like to see our focus on augmenting human interaction because we can do anything. We are so powerful as humans when we need to achieve something. And I've, I've seen this in some terrible situations of powerlessness. People can do anything if they are motivated to do it and you give them the right conditions and you get out of their way, right? So I would like to see AI, you know, just doing the machine stuff and not pretending to be human because I just don't think that's useful or necessary. We have no shortage of humans who are very good at being human. So let's do the other stuff, um, you know, first. So I probably sound like a grumpy old man now, uh, you know, <laughs> complaining about uh, new technologies, but I love technology, but I think a lot of it is overhyped. Can you give uh, just one or two examples of augmented humans in the corporate world? What is possible already? Well, I mean, if you look at, for example, you know, modern finance functions, if you look at modern procurement functions, typically in a large organization, they're processing millions of documents um, using AI, pattern recognition, OCR, and so on. And so that's taken away a whole class of sort of drone jobs that used to happen, you know, within a finance function or within a, within a procurement department. So that's at its simplest, you know, that's, that's doing something at scale quickly and reliably that humans used to, uh, used to do. So that's, that's one, one area. But for me, 
where it gets more interesting is is actually applying intelligence to the coordination of work and the coordination of communications because it's actually not hard to build a a smart personal agent like a knowledge agent or a search agent that knows what you're working on sort of in the background analyzes your communications and your research and can just go out there and find other people that you might want to talk to for example you know that sort of wayfinding concierge function i think has a great deal of potential in organizations and w- something we've been working on for a while. So I think um, there are lots of areas where, again, it's this relationship between the platform and what sits above. I, I want the platform to be a stage on which humans can be their best human selves and coordinate work without dull generic management meet getting in the middle of their conversations and telling them what to do. And so that requires a lot of augmentation and a lot of augmentative technology, data analysis, you know, coordination tools and so on. But the good news is all of that is super simple. It's not as advanced as chat GPT. So again, I'm slightly frustrated that we're not using more of that rather than chasing the dream of, you know, the all powerful Oracle. (laughs) <laughs> I'd love to ask you about the role of managers in this uh, new digital native organization. In a recent article titled Lateral Layers and Loops, you explain that managers need to curate the fabric of the digital firm. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you think back to the start of the pandemic and the sudden sort of enforced switch to remote working, it really raised the question, you know, what is the fabric of our organizations? What is it that joins us together? If it's not the offices or the corridors of meeting rooms or, you know, sitting and pointing at pictures with a stick and wearing a suit and a tie, you know, then what is it? Is it the process landscape? Is it the imaginary value chain that your consultants draw for you? And it made me realize that what it should be today is it should be the the web of interconnected sort of online relationships, communities, connections, and and informal structures that you and I sort of take for granted in in the way that we live our lives and the way that we work, but which is still not yet the, the core fabric of a modern organization. So for me, I teach leaders to think like architects. You know, I also teach them to think like experienced designers because that's job number one is to create the the machine that makes the machines, as Elon Musk would say. You know, you create the the system that allows people to get on and do what they've got to do. So I would like to see everybody having some confidence and some fluency in putting together a digital workplace, you know, putting together a set of tools for a particular team. And I'd like them to pay much more attention to that than the decor on the walls of the meeting room or, you know, or where we go for our offsite in a, in a dull hotel with dull food, you know, for a dull day of like, learning, you know, these, these are the, the questions that I think are really, are really important. And I, I actually have a lot of hope. I, I do a lot of work with emerging leaders and they get this. They understand that they can't take the old system for granted and just operate it. Their generation has to actually, you know, in a way, remake that system. And that's an exciting opportunity, I think, uh, to have in a, in a management or a leadership career. So it can happen. And I think people are great and they will make it happen. But first of all, we need to overcome this sort of like cartel this almost like a conspiracy of management mediocrity you know we have a whole system from business schools to consulting firms to recruitment agents who hire exactly the same dude over and over again you know and this dude is 
is generic, right? I mean, he should be one of the lowest paid people in the organization because we have an infinite supply of them, right? You know, have you ever asked, well, oh my God, we've got a shortage of men with strong opinions. You know, no, of course not. Um, you know, <laughs> you're, you're a woman, you can make them, right? So, um, so you know, we have to overcome this this comfortable sort of blob that sits on top of the organization. It consumes way too much value. It works for itself. It's a complete myth that it works for shareholders unless it's on a short-term stock-linked bonus, in which case absolutely will juice the share price for three years and then crash it as soon as it gets its payoff. So that's a socio-political problem which comes from feudalism originally. It then goes through the way that we created a two-class system in, in, in business schools. It's tailorism. It's all of the rest of it, the belief that there are people who sit with a clipboard and there are stakhanovite workers who need to be more productive. You know, it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense today. So that's the, that's the difficult part of this challenge. And that's the one that I probably shouldn't have mentioned if I wanted to win any business <laughs> through people listening to your podcast. But, you know, that's fine. <laughs> I love what you said. I agree 150% with it. Maybe uh, just a couple more questions before we close. In, in Dare to Unlead, I challenge our focus on org design, which seems to be, to me at least, too exclusive, as if org design alone could solve cultural problems. I, I'm convinced it cannot. What do you think of that? Well, I, I get where you're coming from, and I don't disagree, but I probably have a different balance in how I see these things. For me, we have to tackle structure, culture, practice, leadership, technology, all together, because that's the only way we're going to do this. But there are far too many cases where change agents accept the given reality above them and just try and carve out a space below where they can fight for the right to do work in a smart way. And that's great. That's courageous within the local area. You know, you've told some really interesting stories in your book, which I loved about doing that. But in a way, that's not, you know, perhaps seeing the bigger battle. And so I'm often disappointed with real world examples of that, where we would rather sit and create our own circles and talk to each other, like the working out loud, you know, movement, for example, rather than challenge power. And it's not challenge power because we're political. It's because we literally have a better answer. We have a better solution for shareholders. We have a better solution for employers and stakeholders. So it's not just a question of different points of view. One of the things that I sometimes wonder is when we do like HR-led culture interventions in organizations, it's a bit like we're blaming the lab rats for the maze, right? Because the behavior of a lab rat is all about the maze, yeah? That's what shaped their behavior. And there's so many studies about giving drugs to rats in a maze and everything else. Their behavior inside a maze and outside a maze, two different worlds, two different responses altogether. So I don't want to blame people for the system. I want to change the system, but I want to do it in a, in a, in a productive, constructive way that makes money and improves work and creates better products and services. And I think that's the, that's the big goal And I think culture is often a product of the system that shapes it. And so by changing some of the, 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 the system assumptions, uh, some of the defaults, for example, I think we can create uh, different behavioral outcomes and that all adds up to culture. I don't really buy into this idea that an organization is identity. 
the sort of Wheatley idea that you know you mentioned in, in the book. I don't really buy into that. I think there's a multitude of identities and multi layers of identities, and we don't need to sort of wave the flag and belong to you know the thing and know the mission statement and stuff. I think that's um, that, that's an old idea. And I do think that in the area of empowerment, in the idea of participation and, and everything else, there's a lot of motherhood in apple pie, right? There's a lot of nice liberal words, you know, and it's like, yes, 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 let it wash over me. I love that stuff. But I want to see change. I want to see impact. And so one of the paradoxes of, of liberals everywhere, which they're discovering in Europe today, is that sometimes you've got to fight for your liberal values and you need to be a bit more robust in, in challenging those who oppose them. So yes, culture interventions. I love the whole concept of engagement leadership that you outline very cogently in the book. I think that's a, an excellent blueprint for any modern leader uh, in terms of how they behave. But I think we also do have to tackle the structure as well. And, and do you think that can happen given the, the constraint uh, put on us or that we, we put on ourselves uh, through all sorts of KPIs, short-term stock pricing, etc. Can we really change things significantly? Right. So the reality is KPIs, uh, short-term stock price targets and so on, they are part of this management uh, cartel. They exist for managers to compete with each other for resources. They're not actually meaningful uh, signifiers of organizational performance. You know, we all know that, right? And one of the things that sometimes frustrates me is that I might get brought in to teach leaders about building a collaborative enterprise or collaborating together. And then I say, well, show me your KPIs and all of the KPIs are individual. That's just wrong, right? You're asking people to use discretionary effort and activity to do something which is against their own interests because you judge them only on individual performance. So that's a disconnect, right? That needs to, that needs to change. So I think um, we have to think more deeply about how we track, monitor, and measure organizational progress and performance. We need to think about measuring the organization itself, not just its outputs, right? So how healthy is it? How well-structured and well-performing is it? Is it fit for purpose? You know, is it doing the job we want it to do? And we need to uh, keep working on the organization, not just in it. But I think it's, it's actually not a hard problem to solve. I mean, Microsoft is a, is a good example here because, you know, Satya Nadella has done an amazing job at Microsoft, you know, really, really brilliant leader. And one of the very first things he did when he came into power was he got rid of a competitive employee appraisal system that was in fact acting against their innovative potential. And he got people focused on working together. I think there's a similar story in your book, actually, about two teams uh, for vaccine development. So, you know, he solved that quite quickly and he's created a much, much more effective organization as a result. So I think that's a solvable problem. The problem is the the sort of again in a way the sort of the the, the management sort of blob that relies on all of this that's the hard problem to solve because it's a it's a big historical socio-political um, problem probably the one i'm going to fail to solve in my career <laughs> All right, Lee, that, that's, that was an awesome conversation. My last question would be, what would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? Well, yes, absolutely read it. I would say it's a surprisingly well-researched, very comprehensively documented outline of an entire sort of philosophical approach to 
how we how we lead, you know, or how we get things done together, which I think is is what leadership is about. And I think the framing of this within the sort of liberty, egality, fraternity uh, sort of scaffold is very smart. And it's actually a great way of not just remembering what you're teaching in the book, actually, but making sense of it. Because as you say, there is an interplay between these components, right? Between these, these points of view. And that's the bit that I found refreshing and novel in the book. I'm not a fan of business books. I try to avoid reading them whenever I can. But this was a very good read. Your story, your voice, your experience is really what shines through in the book. And that's the most interesting and valuable bit. But you've also surrounded that with lots and lots of other references and and stories and books and and so on. So it's very educational, I would say. Molto obrigada, Lee. Thank you so much for having been my guest today. I enjoyed very, very much this conversation. Could have uh, taken another a couple of hours. So I'm looking forward to the next opportunity to meet. And thank you again, Lee. And we'll have all links below the episode for people to find you, to read what you write, which is always, always thought-provoking. So thank you so much, Lee. Thank you, Celine. And congratulations on the book. It really was a wonderful, wonderful read. Oh, merci. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together.